Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. You'll see the page number in your worship guide there for the Pew Bibles. We're going to look at a fairly lengthy passage um, compared to uh, perhaps what we've looked at before. We're going to look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. And I'm going to read this in its entirety because this is, my guess is this is one of those passages that when you get to it, you can tend to gloss over and just kind of uh, move on to the next because of the poetry involved. So I'm going to read it and I want you to try to stay with me here and then we'll look at it together. Starting in verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, or your indignation against the sea, when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, would you please help us this morning? Help us to understand and apply your truth that we would bring honor and glory to your name in responding appropriately to it. Help us to be encouraged as we 
look at these verses together and may you get the glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start with a question for you to consider. When was the last time you felt inspired? That you felt inspired. When I was a kid, I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin for a time during my grade school years. It would get pretty cold in the winter, and I was a sports fanatic, okay? I was into all sports. In fact, in the early 80s, I remember when ESPN first came out, and I thought, this is the greatest thing in the world. (laughs) A 24-hour sports network. Of course, back then, they would cover any kind of sport, not just the main ones. But I remember watching basketball in the wintertime. And my favorite team back then was the Celtics. And uh, watching Larry Bird and all the rest of them. And I would probably get to about halftime and I would just be itching to get out and play. So I, would, I was one of those kids. I got out to the, the driveway, spent a half an hour shoveling it off. And I would put my gloves on, my hat and everything. And I would play basketball. Watching basketball in those days inspired me. What is it for you? Maybe it's, uh, if you're a musician, maybe it's witnessing a musical performance of some kind or a concert or you see somebody playing something and, I want to learn how to play that. I think I could play that. Maybe it's watching HGTV like my wife likes to do. (laughs) Or you get ideas, you know, the wheels start turning and you want to, redesign things, you want to build something, uh, whatever it may be for you. You know, what does it mean to be inspired practically? What does that mean? When you're inspired, what happens? Well, it moves you to action. It moves you to do something, whether in, in your thought or in your words or in your deeds, you are moved to action. And I think our text, in a, in a very real way, does just that. It should inspire us by who God is and what he has done. It should inspire us to live by faith with hope, no matter what. After the call in chapter 2, verse 20, after this judgment has been pronounced upon uh, Babylon in the future, The call is to be silent before God, the ultimate judge, for he is in his temple. It's sort of a call to worship and to stand in awe. So it's appropriate that Habakkuk would turn to the Lord in prayer in the midst of that call. And in his prayer, he reflects upon God's judging acts upon their enemies through their history. But on doing so, he unfolds really the main theme of the whole book, which we've already looked at in chapter 2, verse 4. That the righteous shall live by faith. And in many ways, these verses here in chapter 3, in his prayer, is a poetic elaboration upon chapter 2, verse 4. It's a living out of what it means to live by faith. And in spite of the judgments of God already pronounced both on God's people 
and their enemies, the Chaldeans or Babylonians, God's people in the midst of all that are called to live by faith. But the question is how? How is one to live by faith in the midst of all this judgment talk? It's judgment all the way around for everyone. What are, how are we supposed to, what are we supposed to place our faith in exactly? Well, let's consider point one on your outline uh, in verses one and two, Habakkuk's petition. In fact, this whole prayer of his, this personal prayer, is presented as a psalm. You'll see the introduction. You see at the end of verse 19, to the choir master with stringed instruments. Other musical notation and, and pauses listed throughout. You see, this personal prayer of Habakkuk was recorded intended to be sung by the people. Something that they were to remember and to be part, something that was to be part of their corporate worship. So what does Habakkuk pray for? Probably what encapsulates his petition is verse 2. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. That last phrase is kind of the core petition of this prayer. In wrath, remember mercy. Perhaps that's a natural response in the midst of all the judgment talk. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Though it's a natural response, what's the ground on which he makes this petition? What reason would he have to give for praying something like this when judgment's already been announced? Well, he says he's heard a report of God and his work. And in essence, he asks God to do what he has done in the past, to revive it, to make it known in the midst of the years. That, that last phrase could sort of be paraphrased as, as meaning something like, in the midst of all the judgments that you've spoken, or though we seemed destined for death, restore us, be merciful to us in the midst of all of these things. This is difficult for us to do. To walk by faith and have this kind of hope, even to pray this petition, when we're tempted to despair due to our circumstances or even our own sins. We're often tempted to say things like the Israelites said in their history. And we say to ourselves, when we face difficulty, see, God has brought me out into the wilderness to kill me or to pull the rug out, to let me fall. And we say things like, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Or in terms of our sins, we may think, yeah, this all sounds good, but is there really hope? For a sinner like me. This brings us to an important biblical principle. We find hope for the future 
by remembering the past. Point two on your outline. And this covers the bulk of our passage, verses 3 through 15. We, we find hope for the future by remembering the past. Like many of the Psalms, if you read the Psalms, you'll find oftentimes the psalmist cries out for help, cries out for aid from God. And then he begins to rehearse all the things that he knows to be true about God and what God has done in the past to sort of stimulate his heart for hope in the future. And that's exactly what we find Habakkuk doing here in his prayer. But this is the problem probably for most of us. We have trouble remembering who God is and what he has done. You know, what happens when we're faced with difficulty or hardship or even spiritual doubt and guilt? We forget everything. We panic and we forget everything we know to be true about God. We think, yeah, he's provided for me in the past. Yeah, he may have forgiven me of some things in the past. But now, I don't know what he'll do. If he can do anything. You see, this is exactly what the enemy wants you to believe. That God's a stranger. That you've never met him. That you don't know anything about him. You don't know what he's going to do. Why does he want us to think that way? So that we won't walk by faith for the future. That we won't trust in him. Now what follows in verses 3 through 15 is this poetic description of the coming of God. And we'll talk about this as we go along, but it's a picture of the coming of God in judgment and to save for the sake of his people. That's the gist of these poetic images. Now, most of us probably don't read poetry, would be my guess. Um, maybe some of you do. But when it comes to poetry, sometimes, as I said earlier, we kind of glaze over or we kind of skip on over to something that we, can, that we can grab a hold of, you know. Though we sing poetry every week. We think of the hymns and the other songs that we sing. But one of the things that's powerful about poetry is not only that we can say a lot with very little, but also the fact that it, it stirs our emotions. It stimulates our thought. These are captivating images that grab us in a way that other forms of literature do not. And Habakkuk uses these poetic images to provide a collage of hope for God's people on the brink of exile. I don't know how many of you have been to Disney World, but one of the, we went there one time uh, for one day. (laughs) It's about all I could take and about all, all of my pocketbook could take as well. But the kids enjoyed it. They were younger. We had a good time, but I remember one of the attractions, and I guess it wasn't all that popular maybe, it wasn't all that well attended, but it was one of the long-standing attractions of Disney World 
was, I think it was called the Carousel of Progress. If you've been there, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but basically, you go into this theater, so it's not really a ride of sorts, but you, it's this theater you go into, and the history of America is presented in these, in these little settings or scenes. It's this rotating stage, and you go from early America onward, and you see the progress and the technology and all of that. Well, in this passage, Habakkuk gives us a carousel of the power of God displayed for the sake of his people throughout their history. You get the, the stage turns and the spotlight comes on and you see this episode where God was faithful, not only to judge but to save. And it keeps turning and you see glimpses of what God has done in the past and what that says about who God is. So I want you to, as we go along, and I'll be very brief here with some of these, but I want you to pay attention to how these images grab your emotions, how they grab your senses, and how they might inspire you to trust in who God is and what he has done. In verse 3, we have the mention of Timon and Mount Paran. These locations are associated with the south, okay? And you, if you think of uh, Mount Sinai and Edom, if you're looking on the map, they're coming out of Egypt and it's coming from the south. So God is on the move from the south, taking his people into the promised land. So that's kind of the, the gist behind a lot of these images, this movement of God both to judge and to save. And then it mentions in verses 4 and 5, uh, the bright flashes of light, pestilence and plague coming with him. Those are images of judgment. Judgment upon Egypt in the Exodus, where God really gave us a picture, a paradigm of redemption for his people. God is seen in verse 6 as measuring the earth with the nations shaking. And you get this amazing image of the eternal mountains and everlasting hills being scattered and laid low. What is this saying to us? See, God has power over all the earth, all the boundaries of the earth. He can shake the whole world. That's another image that's used in the book of Hebrews as well. But he can even shake those things that we think are permanent or, in a worldly sense, everlasting. No one could move those things, but God can. In verse 7, he mentions the tents of Kushan being in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian trembling. You see, God is on the move and he's, and he's executing judgment on some of Israel's first oppressors. We read about these in the book of Judges where God gave Kushan, the king of Mesopotamia, into their hands. He turned the Midianites' swords on themselves and caused them to flee. See, these are mir miraculous interventions of God, of deliverance. These weren't just human beings fighting a battle. 
God was doing a work, a supernatural work in their midst. And then you get, in verse 8, you get these rhetorical questions about, you know, were the rivers afraid of God? Was his wrath against them? It wasn't against the rivers. But he parted the rivers and he parted the sea. He controlled the Nile in the Exodus event. Why? Not because he was mad with the rivers, but because he wanted to save his people. He gave them miraculous deliverance. And then in verses 8 and following, we get a more explicit picture of God as a divine warrior. I don't know if you picture God like that, but the scriptures often depict God as a warrior, as well as the messianic king. Ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ is depicted as a warrior. Things like he's riding on horses, he's on on a chariot of salvation, marching with bow and arrow, spear in hand, killing the wicked, crushing their heads, piercing them with his arrows, trampling the sea. These are mighty images of victory. And the victory is never in doubt. In verse 10, you get this mention of uh, the deep giving forth its voice and lifting up its hands on high. What does that mean? Well, I think what it's picturing for us is even the depths of the earth and the depths of the sea are lifting up their hands and voices in surrender for God to do as he pleases with his creation. And he does just that with the reference to the sun and moon standing still. That takes us back to Joshua chapter 10, where God defeated the five kings at Gibeah in miraculous fashion, making the sun stand still. This warrior image, we won't look at this particular psalm, but feel free to look at this on your own at some point. One of the classic examples of this is Psalm 18. And David's calling out for help, and basically what happens is you see God immediately responding, suiting up with his weapons and going down to draw him out of deep waters. This reminds me of, if if you ever were a fan of those action movies that were popular, especially back in the 80s. Again, 80s reference for you, but all these action movies, you know, the Schwarzenegger, the Stallone, all these movies, they all followed the same pattern, right? It started off with some gross injustice where somebody, some innocent person or family members kidnapped or they're being oppressed somehow. And then about halfway through the movie, the tide turns, the hero steps up, puts on his armor, puts on his weapons, and unleashes, you know, vengeance upon the bad guy. Think about the emotions that are stirred in you when you watch those types of movies. How much more when we see our God, the God of heaven and earth, in his infinite power, attentive to our cries, 
intervening on our behalf as a warrior, a strong and mighty one. You know, we, we should say with Job in chapter 26, verse 14, it's one of my favorite verses. He basically has poetically talked about these very things in that chapter. That God is a creator and that he is a redeemer. He's slain the serpent, pierced the fleeing dragon. And he says, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Think about that. He has just talked about the fact that he has created all things and he's redeemed his people and defeated the enemy. What else is there? I mean, these are huge things. And he says, behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. Is that your view of God this morning? Or have you forgotten who he is and what he has done? It's almost as though Habakkuk is saying to himself and to the people of God through this prayer, like the psalmist, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Where is your soul this morning? Is it in turmoil? Is it cast down? Discouraged? Remember who your God is. Who He's revealed Himself to be. And what He has done. You know, we're, we are prone in our sin and in our, in our unbelief to expect from God only that which we are able to do ourselves. You ever thought about that? Our hope is sort of dependent upon how favorable our circumstances are to working themselves out. Or if we see there's a possibility for a way out or for good to take place in a difficult situation. And if we can't see it, it can't happen. And, we, and our trust in God becomes no more than a trust in ourselves and our own abilities. You might say to yourself, but there's, you don't know my situation. It's a trap. It's a dark hole. There's no way out. No good can come from this. Let me remind you that nothing is too difficult for God. But you don't understand. I'm the chief of sinners. How can I be forgiven? I can't even forgive myself. You're not God. You can't forgive like He can. You can't save like He can. With Him, there is plentiful redemption. Doing what seems impossible to us is the norm of God's ways. 
So what does this inspire Habakkuk to do? Verses 3 through 15 brings us to our last point, verse 16. It inspires him to fight the fight of faith. Which this really continues on through the end of the chapter. Verse 19. But listen to what he says in verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And then he even turns the corner even more with more hopeful words in verses 17 through 19. But you see, he's honest about his difficulty. He feels the weight of what's coming on the horizon. The difficulty and all that that would involve. It's not easy. It's a fight. It's a fight to trust who and who God is and what he has said. And he's able to wait quietly for this day of trouble. Not because his circumstances have changed, but because he has greater confidence now in who God is. He is one who is able to save. He's one who is able to display mercy. So my question for us this morning is, are we fighting the fight of faith? Or have we just laid down and given up? I'm convinced that the Christian life is a fight. It's a daily fight. To believe what God has said and to live in light of it. But it's a fight that that we fight not alone. He is with us. This mighty God is with us. And it's not a fight that ends in defeat, but one that ends in victory. So if that's the case, how will we fight? Well, we've seen a big clue to answering that question from this very passage. We need to remember. We need to remember who God is and what he's done. If we're going to have faith for the future, faith in his promises that he's made. And where do we find this information? We find it in the word of God. So if you're not reading the word of God, you are not remembering. You won't remember. And you'll give up. Be in the Word of God. Also, throughout this whole context of what Habakkuk is saying, this is a prayer. He's praying these things. So how do we fight the fight of faith besides reading the Word of God? We need to pray. We need to acknowledge God in all our ways and to seek His face and His help. I love Psalm 62, verse 8, which tells us, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. If your heart is heavy this morning, unburden it to the Lord in prayer. 
He really listens. He really is attentive to the cries of his people. And we need to remember the good news of the gospel in the midst of this fight. For Jesus Christ is the ultimate coming of God to judge and to save. Not only in his first coming, but in his second coming. As we await the consummation of all things. We can confidently say that in wrath, God has remembered mercy, hasn't he? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are trusting in him alone for your eternal life, he has taken your wrath upon himself so that you may receive mercy. As the scriptures say, we are like brands plucked from the fire. And we're able to stand before his throne, blameless in him. So be inspired to hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, there's so much in this one passage that tells us about who you are and what you've done. It's easy for us to let that go in one ear and out the other. It's easy for us to listen and to give assent, but to turn around and live as if it wasn't true. Help us, Lord, we pray. May your Spirit stir our hearts to be inspired by your promises, your character, to live by faith no matter what. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.